Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. You're about to listen to the first episode of Trailblazers and our first guest is the mighty Gary Newman. Yes, and uh, before we get started, uh, just a quick reminder, we've got a uh, just a taste here, really, of the of the music that shapes Gary's life in music, but you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists from us and our guests. And we recorded this, uh, this was an early one, we actually recorded this in 2015, and um, the cultural echo of David Bowie uh, dying was still reverberating around those walls, and and it was very much in our frontal lobe, so you kind of need to know that to get the most out of this. Uh, so let's get started. Deezer Originals Trailblazers Gary Newman Welcome, dear friends, to Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, Exhale and Positiva Records founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend or electronic music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that track their fascinating lives. This week's fire starter is one of my personal and professional heroes, a pioneer of UK electronic music and one of our most influential musicians, a man bigged up by artists themselves hugely influential from Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails to Kanye West. It gives me more pleasure than you can possibly imagine to welcome to Trailblazers the best thing out of Hammersmith, Hammersmith since the A4, Mr. Gary <laughs> Newman. Thank you very much. I, I thought you'd like the best thing out of Hammersmith since the A4. <laughs> so, Gary, welcome to Trailblazers. Thank you, And uh, right now I'm going to light the fire and uh, hand over to Nick to fire the first question. Oh, Gary, so thank you so much for coming in to join us, man. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. It's, it's brilliant, it's brilliant to have you here. So um, at, the, at the time of recording, um, you have just been uh, awarded the Q Innovator in Sound Award, mm-hmm. um, and so congratulations on that. It's, thank uh, you. It's yeah. uh, tremendous, you know, sort of career that you've you've had. How have things changed? What, what's the biggest changes in the in the music industry from... You know, when you started through right up till now, you're still making records, you're performing live, you're touring. Um, what what are the biggest changes that you see? I think it depends on what side of it you're looking at. Mm. If you're looking at the recording from mm-hmm. an artist's point of view, then it's an entirely different world to what it was before. You know, mm-hmm. the gone are the days of tape recorders and that thing. Now it's all computers and software and yep. yeah, it's a very different thing. It's made it even easier to to work from home. Yeah. You know, to to not need the big studio complex that mm-hmm. was uh, once considered essential, um, and yet yeah, put out very, very sort of high quality recording. So that's been a massive change. And the other one, obviously, is the the internet. Yes. And what that's done for selling music and for promoting bands. It's it has it's been so brilliant, I think, in in creating direct links between fans and and artists. Before we would have to go via record companies, they would yeah. take out advertising, blah, 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 and Randy would go. Mm. There was no direct link whatsoever. And now there is with social media and so on. You can get right to the very people that buy your records. Yeah. And you can bypass a lot of the unnecessary things that, that um, can actually be a total pain, to be honest, to yeah. try to deal with. You know, so it's. I, I remember when I first started trying to have a record label um, 
the, the difficulties I had getting records into into stores. Yes, they would want the most ridiculous deals that you couldn't afford yeah. as an independent. You know, but we'll take ten of your singles, but we'll only pay you for one. Yeah, so I can't do that. I'm an independent label. You know, yeah, I, I, sure. And so when the record, the big record, High Street chain started to collapse, mm. I was smiling, man. I I wasn't sad to see them go because they hurt music so much in my opinion mm. and they almost destroyed the independent scene for, for such a long time as far mm. as from my perspective of it anyway mm. Mm. so you know best off out of them and now we're we can all be our cottage industries you know we mm. can all be independent and reach out to people in a way that we couldn't before so although sales are going down the internet is possibly to blame for that I'm not even sure that's true it's given us so much in return so it's a very different thing that we just have to adapt to that's all. So, I mean, do you enjoy that direct interface that you can now have with your fans, you know, that the internet allows? Yeah. Or do you find that sometimes a bit weird, you know, the sort of closeness that... Because, of course, when you started, you know, you had a, a sort of... Um, uh, an image that of, of being sort of detached in a way from lots of sort of the normal noise of society. You were the like... mundane, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, but now... Artists, you know, are on are, are so directly contactable, you know, with social media and stuff. I just wonder whether it's something that you do you enjoy that kind of thing, or do you prefer to sort of stay a little bit back from it? Well, it's it depends on the level of interaction you have. Mm. I mean, I I do all my own tweets, for example. Right. I do my Facebook now, and I do. Yeah. Mm. That's only a recent thing for mm -hmm. me getting on mm -hmm. top of Facebook. Mm -hmm. But I don't read feedback. Right. So if I do a tweet and then loads of people make a comment on it, I'll never know what, what they say, but do you I know not I'm... find yourself a little bit tempted to dip in? No. No? Okay. No, I'm Asperger's, man. I've got no need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm, is... I'm autistic. I don't need that stuff. Right. I really don't. I really don't. And I'm... Because it's, it's for some artists, I see them really struggle, you know, when because, you know, there'll be a negative comment and, and some artists can, can be very cut up by, oh, you know, and you can yeah. sometimes see artists getting into little Twitter spats with, you know, members of the public and I'm, mm. it can, but n clearly not well, something the thing, that you well, the, the allow thing, to happen. No, because, avoid it because mm. it does bother you. You can read a thousand lovely things and mm. then one nasty one mm. and it's a nasty one you'll be thinking about when you go to sleep. Yeah. Balance so, of the universe, Gary, that's how I get around that I, we were talking about this earlier yeah. actually before we started rolling when i used yeah. to be on mtv every day for two hours of, of every day you find out very quickly that for everyone who loves you there's someone who hates you yeah and mm. as long as if you're comfortable with that then you i mean i'm not thick-skinned i'm very thin-skinned but that's how that's how i get away that's that's how i sleep just at, avoid at, it at night yeah it's, 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 don't it, look for it you know well, don't don't look for praise because you go looking for praise you're going to find the other stuff as well so, so just, let me let me ask a question then so so did this position at start when you first started releasing records were you not reading you know the nme review or whatever or of, yeah, no, of pleasure I, britain i did i did all that and that's how i learned very very early on don't don't right uh, when I, I i started my own website I, I, I learned html i taught myself html right and i programmed my own websites from about i don't know when it was now when it right back when it started mm. and um never had a feedback page never had anything like that would, mm. that would allow opinion to come on because mm. I don't want it. Right. But, really the, but what Nick was, what I found interesting about the, the, the 
um, this the original question was he was talking about sort of closeness with fans. He was talking about the and you were talking about the direct kind of uh, you, yeah. you know the, the thing that the link that you have with fans and that's an interesting question from from anyone to you because you're one of these the, the few you're one of the like, absolute top people in the world for having great fans like you and placebo and the manic street preachers people like that it's those fans kind of look at those bands and artists almost in a religious way and i've been on tour with you and i've met your fans and they are just the best absolutely brilliant your fans yeah. I, I love them to bits I, and, and that must surely be a reflection on you well i see them a lot i saw them today you know we, we have fans at rehearsals now um, we do we do the meet and greet things. Before I started doing that, we used to I used to whenever I gigged anywhere in the world, I would wait by the bus at the end of the show, and people would queue up, and I'd talk to every single person that was there. I'll be there for hours, you know, sign everything out in the rain, whatever it was. I stand at the front of the bus and I sign everything. I don't do that anymore because I got too old, and it's too cold, <laughs> and I've got pneumonia. <laughs> <laughs> but that side of meeting people, when you're meeting people face to face, and it's a very, it's a far more positive thing, yeah. Uh, and I and I enjoy it very much. Um, the thing about the internet is, you know, the problem with the internet is it, it's given everybody a voice, and it seems to me that so few people know how to be respectful mm. of that voice. You've mm. now got an opportunity to say what you think, and they just come out with this vicious, vitriolic nonsense. So many of them, and I, well, I don't want to read that. I'm not going to waste my. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've only got a few years left. Yeah. I'm not going to waste well, it. Time is limited, isn't it, yeah. for everybody, you know? No, listen to that crap for So, yeah. I, you know, forget it, yeah. really. Talks. And I don't need the praise either. Yes. So I don't, I'm not sort of desperately trying to filter out the bad so I can just read all the good stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure people, some people like what I do, some people don't. Yeah. I'm all right with that. You know, I'm home with my family and loving life. Yeah. You have your opinions. Great, you know you have them. You have them. <laughs> I don't need them. I don't need them. Yeah. Good. You know what? Let's let's. Uh, we should we should play some music shortly. So I'm I'm interested to know what was the first piece of music that really touched you. The first time you went like, oh wow, you know. I was this about is great. I was about four years old, uh, sitting with my mum and dad, and my mum and dad were playing their old fifties um, records, yeah, their old collection yeah. that they had of old old forty fives. You know, yeah. with big. Big hole in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they played a song called Johnny Remember Me. Um, I think it might by a man called Johnny Layton. I can't remember for sure. And, and the Flames, I think. Mm. And um, and it was, I thought it was beautiful and it really touched me. And, I, and that was the first time I became aware of, of music, really, and, you know, and what it meant. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. Well, it's hard to believe, I know, but I hear her singing in the sign of the wind blowing in the treetops. Way above me Johnny Yes, I'll always remember Till the day I die I'll hear her cry Johnny Remember me John Layton and Johnny Remember Me. So listening back to that now, Gary, like transport your, your rewind your mind back to where were you when that first hit you? In our lounge, I remember. 
uh, really well in Hammersmith in, in West London. No, no, after Hammersmith, I was I was born there. Oh, okay. So, but you lived. I never actually lived in Hammersmith. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's a very fond place in my heart, obviously. Mm. No, I sit in, in my mum and dad's in their, their, their council house actually, even back then in, yeah, in, yeah. Lon- in London somewhere. And no, suburbs out near Heathrow Airport. Okay. And this okay. would have this you would have heard this on the radio or on a record like a, on a record, player, a record good player. old like a dance set or something with a cloth yeah. with a cloth facing and yeah and the big rounded thing yes you know, baker light yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh fantastic so so what you know so can you remember what went through your head when you when you listened to this I, I just found it really haunting and it uh, like Jim was just saying it, it reminded me of horses galloping along and and I think it was the melody of it it's a really beautiful melody. And and I've always been um, melody has always been the thing for me about yeah. music. You know, grooves and, and power and all, all also an important part of it. But if there's no tune, it it, it never means as much. But also, you use the word haunting, and yeah, you know, a haunting yeah. melody could be used to describe almost everything that you've ever made. Uh, quite a lot of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that was it. Maybe it, it struck some sort of primal core in me, you know. So, so um, when did you start to think like, hey, I'd quite like to maybe make music, or maybe I can make music? When did when did that penny drop? That was that was a bit later. When I, mean, I there was a period when um, uh, when the monkeys came out, uh, I, I got massively into into the monkeys and and. Um, I started to have my own little, um, like a, we called it a band, but just right. miming, miming, really, a miming to, band to Monkey's Records. But I was still like pretty a big young sort then. of EDM DJ of <laughs> <laughs> kind of equivalent, <laughs> something like that, something like that. Yeah, yeah. but that, that that was sort of the, the next level for me when when I heard the Monkeys and we would. Um, we 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 had this. I say we had this band mm. in our street, and we would go around people's houses, and we would mime to Monkeys records. I was Mike Nesmith, right? Uh, that was my role in it. So <laughs> my mum, Mike Nesmith, in the Monkeys TV show, used to have a green bobble hat without a bobble. So my mum made me one. So I, I, had a, so I used to like dress up to go out, and, and I was only eight. And do these gigs, and do these basically. Gigs. We got money. We get paid sweet like money. A few coins. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. When you were eight, you were in your first band. Eight, you were yeah. eight years old. Eight. I think it was eight, eight or nine. Wow. Did you say that you, you, what was the name? You had the Mini Monkeys or something. The name of your band? Oh, Monkey Juniors. We were Monkey called. Juniors. <laughs> Monkey Juniors. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find this now. Let's, uh, let's play uh, a record by the original Monkeys, and we can all. Imagine that scene. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. I was mesmerised by the monkeys when I was a little, when I was a little boy. <laughs> so that was the Wrecking Crew playing on that. We were just talking that the the band that played that track, yeah. um, just the, the best session musicians uh, um, around. Uh-huh. So now, um, so um, rewinding back, uh, Gary, to um, you, we we talked about uh, th- this track as being your 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 eight year old band track. So later on, um, you you mentioned that you had Asperger's. And, and you, you know, obviously, learning difficulties and stuff. So you, you were in lots of trouble at school. Yeah. Your your teenage years must have been quite interesting. And like, and, and that the, the the whole sort of trouble, the trouble generation, punk ha- happened. And you were right in the middle of all of that. 
It was interesting, yeah. Well, I went to grammar school. You know, I did the 11 plus and I was bright, apparently, and off I go to grammar school and so on. Um, and then things started to happen and you know, my problems of interaction with people and authority is a real issue. And, right. and it all just started to fall apart a little bit, really. And then music started to become really important to me. And I wanted to be in a band and I wanted to get out and get on with that. So I would have decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. So so what age had you decided that? 13, 14? About 13, 14, around about then. Right. I started to... To figure um, that, that this was the route. Yeah. So yeah. then you kind of... You were playing what instruments at 13, 14 years old? Uh, a guitar. Guitar. My mum and dad had bought me an electric guitar. Actually, yeah. you um, got a Les Paul, didn't you? Yeah, you later were, on. Yeah. Oh, okay. But I, I had the I had my first electric when I was not long after the Monkey Genius split up. See <laughs> 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 musical differences. Can, can I can I just ask? Is there any chance that we can get the band back together? Again? <laughs> <laughs> What's the chances? Come on, this is a, this is a documentary waiting to happen, right? Where are they now? Sure, you audition somebody to mime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Show uh, me what you do. Okay, and then so when you had, you know, you, you you were actually starting to play real instruments. What did you have? You had bands that were doing what youth club gigs or? I didn't. No, I wasn't in a band. I I I had this guitar, and very early on, even oh, this was what ten or eleven, I yeah. guess by now, and I had this guitar and a few pedals, and I I realised even then that I wasn't that interested in playing music as such, but I really liked noises mm. so I'd make my guitar do these weird noises and little grooves and things like that mm. so I never really I mean I learned a few basic chords mm. that you need need to know mm. but I never really sat down and practiced and tried to learn scales and you know I didn't know the names of it I could make thing, you know finger shapes that yeah. would make a nice sound but I didn't know what they were called okay didn't care okay. You know, <laughs> I just wanted to make these cool noises with it and so I never really tried to develop as a musician right never have Never, I've never really gone away from that sort of thing. Were you writing lyrics at that point? Yeah, I was writing these these basic sort of tunes, which were really sort of just noise-driven things mm. with some chords on. Um, I wasn't really writing lyrics or songs. I was writing poetry. I wrote hundreds and hundreds of bits of dreadful poetry, probably. Oh, we all and did stories. that. And stories. <laughs> I would write short stories and right. things. I've always written lots of stuff okay. uh, in different formats. Um, but then it was round about... I think it would have been when I was about 14 that T-Rex came along. So that was the first electric guitar yeah. music that really reached yeah. down into you. And that really changed everything for me. At that point, I thought, I, and I liked the lifestyle that he rejected. I loved the music. I loved mm. the way he played guitar. Mm. And that, that did change me a little bit. And then I really started, I really, I need to learn this a bit better. You know, noises wasn't quite cutting it anymore. Um but never really did a very good job of it, to be honest. Yeah. But that was a band, yeah. And there was, I mean, just a great song after a great song, you know, Hot, Swan, Hot Love, Get It On, Jeep Star. But then Telegram Sam came out. And were I you just, thinking, I, I, you know, were you seeing Mark Bolan on Top of the Pops thinking, yeah. were you thinking, I, I want to be on Top of the Pops one day? Yeah, that's where it all started. You know, I, I, with Mark Bolan, that was really, that, that, that's what I want my life to be. I want to be in a band, I want to do music. I want to have all the things that I can see he's got. I want yeah. to be on top of the pop. So yeah. I want all of that, all, that. all of that. And uh, do you know what? I'm not even sure that 
it, it wasn't more of a lifestyle decision than a musical one. Mm. I think did, you grow your hair? did you grow your hair? No. <laughs> <laughs> I want what he's got. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> but I didn't. I, 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 there is a part of me that, that, that has often wondered whether the, the decision to go that way because of Mark Bolan really was more a lifestyle thing. Yeah. Than a, than, I, I did love the music. I really did. I was a massive fan. But I, I think even more, I loved the lifestyle that he projected. Mm. You know, mm. the cars and the money and, and all that sort of stuff. Oh, what a great way to live your life. Yeah. And you're doing music. You know, what, yeah. what a most perfect combination. Yeah. It's everything. Everything you love doing, everything you want, you know, it's all wrapped up in that one thing. So that's me. That's my life. That's where I'm that's where I'm going. Well, let's hit that uh, that lovely Les Paul gold top. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. This is Trailblazers, and we're with Gary Newman. And uh, so, so Telegram Sam, that I just, I think, I, when I hear that, I just think pure sex, and and that gold Les Paul, that glittering mm. Les Paul gold top. And d- didn't you get bought one by your parents? You one of those lucky children that got yeah. you got you got bought a Les I Paul. Was, yeah. I bought I got, bought a Les Paul. Yeah, uh, a 60, 64 gold top. Have you still got it? Because Mark Bowen had one, yeah. Um, no, no, it got stolen. The house got oh, burgled. And they no. took that. I had a Fender Stratocast as well. They took that. They took my entire uh, record collection. Even stole my clothes. Uh, when, not, when did this happen? Oh, God. I would have been about 17, I think. So what's that, 75? Right. Something like that. So yeah. somebody somewhere has got that guitar. Well, it went. That- it was taken to a pawn shop in Fringley Park. And the man in the pawn shop, Clearly knew it was stolen because he offered them about fifty quid for it, which they took. Yeah, and took their photographs, but still sold it. You know, it's stolen. Yeah, so the police got heavy on him as well. But anyway, mm. they ended up in court. These people, they caught them. They ended up in court. The man that was the, the brains behind it, so to speak, went to court in my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> really? So yeah. Not the clothes. Wearing man. my clothes. Oh, How brazen is that? God. Yeah, so, and then he got community service or something. Oh, God. And I he'd don't done want about three or four houses in our area on the same day he did ours. So, yeah. was there a, a policeman in, in the court who said, Can you, I'd like to take you, you should take down your particulars or something like that and take give, down give them charges. back to yeah. Gary Newman <laughs> or something along those lines? I don't know. I'm making this up as I go along. But. <laughs> So from from Mark Bolan, um, we go to uh, the, I guess the next the next person in your life that that you really musically identified with must have been David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. I was late into Bowie because of the Mark Bolan David Bowie apparent conflict at the time. They didn't appear to get on for a while, and so as a loyal T Rex fan, I wouldn't listen to David Bowie records for a bit. So I missed the. The Ziggy Stardust explosion when it all happened yeah. for Bowie. So I got into him a little bit late, not too much later, but a little bit later, and and I loved it. And and the the, the thing for me was the 
an entirely an entirely different level of performance and projection and the, the use of image mm. and uh, the personality the persona yes yeah. more accurate than personality the persona yeah. of it was was captivating and i was totally sucked into that well that's really not surprising because there is such a strong similarity there's almost a dotted line between david bowie and you just in terms of the, the sort of regeneration and the the reinvention and always kind of being one step ahead of the game and also that whole like you say that character thing because when you first you know exploded you were a character yeah in a way weren't yeah. you yeah well i learned that from bowie you know, you know when, when i first started to make music um going on stage uh and you know pubs and clubs and that, and that sort of thing i was a wreck I couldn't have a conversation for the two days before the gig. I was so nervous. Mm. And my dad took me to one side one day and said, you know, if you don't find a way of dealing with this, he said, this is just the worst career you could ever ever choose. He said, sort yourself out or get out. So um, I thought about that. And um, and that's where the whole thing about this, the persona and the image and, and this thing that you, in a way, you hide behind it. And you, and you put on this front and you can pretend to be someone that isn't nervous. And it's, it's, it, it doesn't make much sense when you say it out loud like that, but it, it does work. You, you, it's almost as if you flick a switch and you become something different. You come off stage and you flick it back off again. So were you kind of gradually experimenting with that sort of on stage persona? Just kind of introducing, no, trying little. No, no, it was an overnight thing. I, I, I did a, I did a, I didn't do many gigs, but I did a few in my little punk band. Um, I did one at the White Hart in Acton with the Skids so supporting, actually, with wow. Richard Jobson, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, massive fight, and it all stopped, and it was all horrible and blood, and not with me, I was out of it, but <laughs> it was just a horrible experience. Now, yeah. this is not what it's meant to be about. You know, maybe fighting, you know, it's a gig, man. Yeah. So I'm um, really disappointed with that and stopped. Um, I think I had my record deal by then with Beggar's Banquet, and uh, now I didn't want to play live anymore. I, 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 I hated it. So it was in that period between that horrible gig and when actually that was the same night that my dad had gave me this little lecture, that's that same White Hart gig yeah. in Acton. And then the next time I played live, I think it was a couple of years later, when I played at Glasgow Apollo, and now I'm number one and it's all massive and, and brilliant. And in that, in the meantime, I, I'd, I'd come up with this whole image thing and I, I was writing short stories, science fiction stories and things like that. So I started to take on... And personalities and so on, or mm. looks and images and, and various things from the stories that I was writing. So when I made it and I ended up in these big stages, I had it all worked out what I was going to do, how I was going to look, the mm. clothes, the, even the way I moved, I practiced every and, gesture. And, well, yeah, so, so it was very contrived, but it was a way of getting me through that early stage before I, eventually you, you get confident, you do it so much, you, you know, you, 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 how can you not get more confident? And with that, you relax and it becomes easy and you don't need it the way you need it. So I don't really need to flick a switch anymore when I go on, although I think I still do without realising that you... Gemma says that I walk differently when I'm on stage. You know, the <laughs> that's way, fascinating. Okay. That's, that's really fascinating, yeah, actually. I have, I have a Gary Newman walk. I, t- I, I tell you why I find that fascinating is because one of my favourite... Um, film acting roles is um, Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers. Do you remember that? It's a mm. David Cronenberg film. Mm. And he had to play, yeah, Gemma, Gemma's nodding massively in the background. Um, <laughs> so, and he, have you seen this, Nick? He's, no. He plays he plays identical twin gynaecologists. Right. And when you ask him how 
did you and, and all the way through the film you can imagine he, he's the same bloke playing both characters but you're <laughs> never in any doubt as to which character portraying at any time it's the, mm. it's absolutely brilliant mm. and i remember an interview with him and they said how did you do that i mean as an actor that's just, that's phenomenal and he said that it was it was easy i just played the there's the two brothers one's a bit more kind of um forthright and the other one's a bit mm. more shy mm. he played the the one brother on the balls of his feet and he played the other one on his heels so he literally had a, had a different walk for, for each one, a different yes. way of standing, a different way of moving, you know, because it's just either balls, it's just straight, you know, up or, or mm-hmm. kind of rocking back. And mm-hmm. so it's, that's fascinating, <laughs> fascinating that you said that. So with that, let's 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 listen to the to the man of many masks. And, and if you like the blueprint for what became Gary Newman. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. guitar solo that, that Mick Ronson guitar solo I love one finger guitar solos I just oh, love them it's good so um, Gary we've talked a lot about and reminisced about a lot of guitar music but of course people know you mostly as an electronic music artist yeah and so there must have come a time where you heard something or saw something or played something or walked into a room possibly and and beheld yeah. a machine of some kind yeah so what, what, <laughs> behold the machine so so what was your what was your entry what was your entry drug into electronica what was your what was your entry uh, your entry point into the world of electronic music it was then? quite by chance I, I was um i got signed by beggar's banquet as a, as a three-piece i was in a band called tube by army yes of course we were a three-piece punk band i was guitar and vocal bass and drums you know uh so we go to the studio to record what essentially was our live set what we've been signed for uh and while the boys are unloaded i went into the studio to say hello and meet the engineer and do all that bit what studio was this the spacewood in cambridge uh-huh. it was called um and while the me uh the other two were unloading the, the car and bringing the stuff in I, I went in to say hello and in the corner of the control room was a, a synthesizer which turned out to be a, a mini moog Ah, I never seen one before. A real one. I hadn't really heard any electronic music that I'd liked. Really, I'd like Kraftwerk a bit. Um, I'd even bought an album or two of Kraftwerk, but I, I didn't want to do it. I admired it for what it was. Yeah, but it was for me. It was too electronic. It was too artificial. There was mm-hmm. no real yeah presence to it. I don't, I don't know how to explain it very well, but yeah. it was, for me there was something missing. Sort yeah, of. there was an organic element that wasn't there. Yeah, which I didn't realize at the time, but I now know that. From, that's the I love that side of it, and it needs to be there. Yeah, for me. Um, so I go to the studio and I see the synthesizer, and I'm I'm very geeky, and I like noises anyway, and I like switches and buttons. It's not like <laughs> aeroplanes, and you're covered in switches and buttons. You know? <laughs> so uh, I said to man, "Do you mind if I have a go?" Now, I th- I, I, I've always thought it was hired and it was waiting to be collected. I, I've, I've read recently that it wasn't. It belonged to the studio, but I didn't know that. I thought it was going to be taken away. So I said, do you mind if I have a, have a go of it? So uh, they said, yeah, okay, fair enough. They you know, plugged it in, turned it on, and I pressed the key down. I didn't know how to set them up at all. It was a big mass of dials and buttons. Just pressed the key, and luckily, whoever had used it before, 
had left it on this huge bottom end growl roar. And it, so I pressed this thing, and the noise, you know, this massive sound, the room shook. Oh. Never heard anything like it. And at the low end, you, know, you felt it through your feet. And, whoa, one finger whoa. did that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One That's finger. Incredible. No skill whatsoever. No. <laughs> 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 one finger. That's for me, so, I yeah. thought. So I can do this. Very, I can do this, yeah. So the game changed. So everything you, changed. And for the next few days where we were there, this machine was there. In fact, I think it might only have been there for the first day. I, I really can't remember too much now. But anyway, I was allowed to use it. Uh, and I, on the fly, converted all of my punky chunk, 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 chunk songs into little electronic hmm. type songs <gasps> and just twiddled and twiddled until it made a noise that I liked, recorded it, twiddled again until it made another noise that I liked and recorded that and tried to convert various parts. Came out with loads of extra melody lines that weren't there before because it was all on guitar. Just guitar and me singing. But now I had something that could do other things. It could make other melodies around the vocals. So I I worked on that. It was only there for about three days, I think. And we had to make the whole album in three days. Those were the days. Oh, my God. (laughs) Including the mixing. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, 16 track as well. Oh, my God. So I went back to Beggar's Banquet with that album. Uh, and initially, they were really unhappy. It wasn't. I was going to say, what did your your A&R man must have had a conniption? Yeah, well, it was Martin Mills and Nick Austin uh, yeah. uh, were the two people that ran it, owned it at the time. Yes, and um, and it was pretty difficult actually. They it wasn't what they wanted. It wasn't what they expected. So they they were initially really upset with me. Isn't uh, that fascinating? That that you know one of the electronic music pioneers, you know, most respected. And they were really disappointed when he came in with some pioneering electronic music yeah. and well, said, "This well, is got what quite we heavy." Want. You know, Martin was very quiet, um, but Nick Austin was quite vocal uh, in his dislike and disappointment for it. And we we actually stood up to each other at one point during this meeting. And I mean, I'm little either beating the crap out of me, you know. But I was so passionate about it and so convinced that not me necessarily, but this sort of music was was going to happen at some point or another and I wanted to be at the forefront of it right. I didn't realise at that point that there were plenty of other people already doing it because I hadn't heard of them um, or, or Human League or Christian Movers yeah, of course, all these people that were around at the time right. but I hadn't heard them you so sort I of thought, discovered it yourself yeah. rather than well, well, you I thought about discovered it. well this yeah. sort of hostility that you talk about in this initial sort of A&R meeting when you, when you brought the, the, the tape back I mean that's not hostility that's just raw fear it's fear of the unknown because if you, well, this is nineteen seventy-seven, seventy, early seventy-eight, no, mid seventy-eight. That so was, seventy-eight, yeah. and you're bringing in an electronic record, and and that that's that must have been incredibly scary. That's a challenge well, to the status quo. Particularly seeing as that wasn't at all what they were expecting. So and they wanted a punk record, yeah, yeah. and but they didn't yeah. hadn't realised that you can actually be a punk with a keyboard just as much as you can with yeah. a Les Paul. Arguably more so, yeah, more alternative. So, but we had this big row and eventually Martin, you know, sort of the voice of reason said, well, let's put it out and see what happens, you know. I, I've never known for sure whether they, they agreed to that because they simply couldn't afford to send me back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course, because in those days there was no Pro Tools at home and a so, studios cost an enormous amount of money. Yeah, yeah. They they got a huge amount of in, no investment. Yeah. And they were, yeah, in, they were but, one of the first independent labels, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, and they only signed me because I already had, I'd already recorded. My first single was called That's Too Bad. We'd already recorded it. I had my own van. And again, thanks to my mum and dad, we had a little PA system to so go out and do clubs with our own PA system. Wow. So we, we were 
self-funded. self-funded. So they wow. signed, and they admitted that. They said, look, we can't afford you because you've signed all the bands that we think we can have. But because you've got everything in place, we, we, we'll take you on and we'll put out your single. Give it a go. Give it a go, yeah. And so, um, but it, but your first single was not a success, was it? No, no. The it, first one wasn't, the second one wasn't. Yeah, it was... How, how, how many releases did it take before before success happened? Well, I did two as a punk. The first one was called That's Too Bad, and then one, did one called Bombers. And then I made the electronic album. We didn't take any singles off that. That was released as, a, as an album only. Mm. Uh, and didn't do anything like as badly as I think they expected it to. Okay. Uh-huh. Got a couple of averagely, you know, not too bad reviews. But it wasn't slammed into the ground. And it, and it sold a few thousand, which wasn't too bad for an unknown band yeah. at that time. And then the next single was, for the next album... I did three was, albums in 12 was, months. You know, I mean, I was really wow, prolific. Yeah, yeah. The next one, a few months later, was Replicas. And the first single from that was called Down in the Park. Yep. And that did a bit better, but it mm-hmm. wasn't a hit by any means. Mm-hmm. I think it got to 198 or something. Yeah, but, it, you know, yeah it says, ooh, top 200. Yeah. It, says, it says it fails to chart, but, but it might be interesting from the point of view of a, you know, 14-year-old or 13-year-old or whatever I was, schoolboy at the time, that down, you know, down in the park was the first thing that, that registered with me. Yeah. And I remember buying the single. Oh, really? And being really, I think I must have read about you in, a, in the record mirror or something. And, um, and, and buying that and then buying replicas. And, and you know how dear replicas um, <laughs> is to me. We've talked about this on, on my, uh, my old XFM show. So, so then... The second single off that album, then suddenly everything changed. Yeah, that second one was called Our Friends Electric, and and that was that went to number one for a month, I think. It took a while though, didn't it? As mm. I recall, didn't it? It, it bubble under for quite it didn't because right? in those days you used to you so could just climb. You, yeah, you could just well, it was that's when it climb got it. up. It, it came out. Um, I can't. I, do you know? I honestly, I can't remember the the the. the the full history of it now and what mm. happened but I know it was they made it as a, a limited edition picture disc mm. and that in itself was amazing uh, because I, I think that my, my total record sales at that point had been about five or six thousand you know, nothing you know and then Our Electric is five over five minutes long you can't dance to it it doesn't have a chorus as such so it's about as radio friendly as a punch in the face mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and, uh, and yet somebody I, I think beggars by this time are going through WEA. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and somebody at WEA decided that they would make Half Inch Electric a picture disc when picture disc had just come out, mm. and they made twenty thousand picture discs. Now, whoever that man was has made my entire life what, what it is because that that honest to God yep. that decision changed everything because that wow. twenty thousand people bought that picture disc without even knowing what the song was because it was a picture disc yeah it was like an instant collector's item and that was enough to get it bubbling under so it pops into the lower reaches of the chart but number 80 yeah around about there and and this is where luck comes into it at that particular point our, uh, top of the pops are doing a thing called bubbling under strangely enough and they would pick a record that wasn't in the chart and they would play it and then they didn't do that before I don't think they did it much afterwards either mm-hmm. but for a short period of time they did this bubbling under and that week I was or Tubey Army was and Simple Minds were they, they, they were the two choices me or Simple Minds mm. and they chose me because they thought Tubey Army was a more interesting name so I'm told and so they played Our Fringe Electric on Top of the Pops or we got to go on Top of the Pops do Our Fringe Electric and it Exploded. went ballistic 
Yeah. I remember. Blew my mind. Trailblazers. Gary Newman. I love all the sounds of that, and I just I love everything about that record. But so, um, Thank you. was that um, was was that the Mini Moog on on that? Uh, it's Mini Moog mainly, uh, Poly Moog, and a thing. The studio that we was in, they had a, a thing called a Roland SH two thousand, yeah, and they drilled a hole through it and put a chain on it and cemented it to the wall, <laughs> so nobody could steal it. So we, there might be a bit of that on it as well. I think. Oh, amazing! And of course, we so many people that there's you know kids know that tune because it got appropriated many like decades later by the sugar babes and yeah that's right yeah. it must have been used on so many ads and films um so well let's talk a little bit about so you the, the game changed for you at that point and then suddenly you were a pop star i mean life yeah. must have just suddenly got very very different and quite intense for you it got, yeah it got pretty weird actually yeah um Bearing in mind, I'm still relatively young anyway at that point. I'm a 21 years old. Yeah. But I was quite an immature 21 as well. I wasn't worldly wise at all. Um, and I got Asperger's. So you got, there's a whole world of stuff going on, yeah. you know, which is difficult to deal with. And uh, for anyone, you know, just yeah. going, living a normal life. And then you're now this overnight mega star thing. And, 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 and that comes with a lot of pressure. Yeah. So for someone like you, that was that difficult to, to yeah, deal with? Yeah, oh, well, it is difficult, yeah. And you're, I think it's more difficult when you're a solo act as well. I mean, I'm on my own. I've got no band to share it with. I've got no band to share the pressure or the workload, the interviews, everything comes to you. I wrote everything. I produced it. I designed the covers. Um, it yeah. was a complete one-man. It was called Chilby Army, but it was a very much a one-man yeah. thing. And so you... The good side of it is you 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 get all the the love and the praise and the, and the, the kudos and the publishing, publishing, <laughs> especially. But on the other side of it, you get all the stick as well. And yeah. the problem with being at the forefront of a new genre like that um, is that you, you know if you're the one that opens the door. There are always rocks and sticks thrown. Of course, I mean anyone a- that opens the door to something new. And, and, and how would you have, have felt that, that that negativity in that era? So pre-internet era. So how how did you feel those you know rocks and stones kind of coming your way? Oh, uh, well, quite literally writing letters into the NME saying, "Yeah, the oh, there's lots of that." And the music press were horrible, horrible. Really, were they horrible about replicas? Yeah, yeah, your replicas. You uh, didn't get good reviews. One next one, Pleasure Prince, all that cars on it. You know, I mean, these are number one albums. Yeah, not good. Really, not really. Good what about, it was more what about Melody, Maker? It was, Melody Maker like it? I don't think Melody Maker liked me at all. No, right. An enemy hated me. Pretty much always has done. Yeah, and there were things like sounds. You remember sounds and yeah. record mirror and the enemy hate everyone. Good. It was pretty, pretty grim, and they were hostile to me personally. 
Oh, really? Yeah, one of you know, they said at one point that my mum and dad should have been doctored for giving birth to me. You know, it's oh, really, come on. Yeah, really vicious, nasty. And you think, what have you done? I, I wrote a well, song that a million people have gone out and bought. So well, that says more about I've the just sowed a whole it. load of happiness out there. That's mm. all I've done. And you're getting all this stick for it because you don't like that kind of music. And a lot of it was ignorant. The Musicians Union tried to ban me for the first year or two because they said I was putting real musicians out of work. Wow. Oh God, of course. How offensive it's, is that? Uh, that's, wow. uh, that's astonishing. And because uh, people use the phrase, uh, and I used it earlier on, a threat to the status quo and you were literally a threat to status quo yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry I'm, funny. I'm here Very all good, week actually. I'm here all week <laughs> it's excellent so let's talk a little bit about um, who else was around taking yeah. flack at that time because um, you opened the door and a lot of people then were brave enough to step through yeah, that door yeah the thing is that the, the thing that I noticed was the people that come through afterwards and a lot of them were brilliant you know, not, I, I wasn't better than them. There were a lot of great people coming along after me, pretty much trampled me to the floor as they hurtled, as they hurtled past. <laughs> um, but they didn't seem to get the same stick. They really didn't. Mm, I, I, I think by the time I'd come along and it had all gone massive and then these other people come along who arguably had a, a higher level of, sort of pop sensibility than I did. Mm. I'm not, I was never a very good pop star. I don't think my music was ever particularly suited for, for pop Music. It, it was because it, yeah. it was it was underground. It, it was yeah. underground music that became overground, like the prodigy. Actually, yeah, uh, there's, there's the, the parallel. Yes, um, it, you know, you weren't writing pop music. You weren't a, a you know a, a Calvin Harris no. thirty years before Calvin. It was it was underground. Sometimes underground becomes pop. Like yeah. yeah. Well, let let me ask. You know, did you did you think when you wrote our friends Electric or Cars? Did you think right? This is a hit record. I know this is a smash. He would have written a chorus if he was going <laughs> to. <laughs> or, or did you just think this is my thing and let's see what it does? With Our Friends Electric, definitely. Our Friends Electric was just two songs bolted together. That I couldn't, two songs that I couldn't finish. That one day by chance I played one and I played the other and realised they worked together. So the talking part of Our Friends Electric is a song that I had that I couldn't finish uh-huh. and the other bit is another song that I had that I couldn't finish and I just bought them together so I never had any great um, feelings that I was a, even though I had a number one single and album I didn't think of myself as a great songwriter uh-huh. because I knew that I'd cobbled these bits together and I've been lucky you know with Cars Cars was slightly different because I'm not by then you were a star yeah. So you knew that you have to be a bit of an idiot to think hang on I've written I'm, I'm, I'm now Massive, yeah, and I've got this song called Cars, which is vaguely catchy. Yeah, it'll probably do all right. Yeah, so but that Cars, I think, was the only song I've ever thought this might do all right because I just yeah. come off the back of a massive number one, and it was pretty catchy. You know, yeah, but no, never before, never since. It's, I promise you, never since. It's interesting that you mentioned the the cobbling together of two tracks that you couldn't finish into one because I've I've encountered this several times over the years. Artists who sometimes might have four, five, six different bits of you know, music and just take the best bit of this one, best bit of that, best bit of that, shove them all together. Then you've got a a great record, you know, it's, and I think that's something that Niall Rogers once said, you know, a lot of the, the making of the hit is, is in the editing. It's how you pick yeah. the different elements and put them together. Not necessarily the writing of it, because when you're writing records, writing tracks, often there's some, there's a nugget in there that's brilliant and a bunch of other stuff that's okay. And some aspects of it are not great, but it's about finding those key bits 
is you know uh, for me funnily enough I, although that was what worked for me with our friends electric um as a songwriter i don't like that approach uh-huh to me as a songwriter it, it feels impure to take bits you it, the song the writing of a song is a process and you start it and it will go where it goes and it will come back and it will move around but if it doesn't as a single piece of writing work then, then i would feel clumsy and awkward to take a bit from somewhere else and bolt it together because the the process wouldn't have been complete so so what comes first typically with you uh, a riff or a lyric or they're both at the same time and the lyrics are the last lyrics are the last thing for yeah. you yeah okay yeah um quite often most of the time it'll be i sit down at the piano and i'll come up with the melody yeah. and structure mm. Uh, every once in a while it'll be a, a huge it'll be a groove or a riff and that would be the thing and I'll get that going and then you add the melody to it mm. but I, it's probably 75% would start with melody mm-hmm. and then 25% start with groove get that working get the feel of the track so when you listen to it as a piece of music it makes you think of things and feel something and that guides where the lyric's going to go that guides the words because now you've got an emotion or something that you're trying to get out and the words follow naturally because of uh, that. Okay, so the, the words are inspired just by the music you're hearing. So you're not yes. like one of these people who has a, a list of, of concepts, you know, sort of different titles and it, it really is like, what what's that saying to me? That feels like it should be saying this lyrically. and Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not always been like that. Right. But yeah, I can remember back in the day that I would write down... Uh, ideas for titles and I would start to I'd have a whole list of ideas for titles and then I never I didn't try to make them fit but it was a starting point mm. and then I'd let the music guide me and i find which title most suits that and then the lyric would follow but I don't even I don't do that now music first completely um, and then how does it make you feel mm. does it is it a memory does it bring back something from your past does it does it relate in any way to recent experiences you know with splinter for example the mm-hmm. last album i'd been through this whole depression thing mm-hmm. for a while so then you're you're writing these tunes and there was just a head full of things that you wanted to come out and, and every bit of music would just trigger something and, and you it was easy it just got everything out you know it's a really a lovely process you got all this horrible feelings out and, and and when you're writing about something um you 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 want to say the right words you you want to express exactly what you mean and when you're talking about something to do with de- depression for example it's even more important that you say exactly the right thing and so you write and you write and it isn't quite right you know you you, you haven't got quite the right words so you think why isn't it right why isn't that saying what you feel and so you think about it very very deeply and then you find the right words that's it that sums it up and what you're doing when you're doing that is getting all that negative stuff out because you are thinking about it in the same way that you would if you went to see a therapist they only make you talk about it and think and realize what it is that's going on with you and it does exactly the same thing so it's like having an inbuilt therapist and that you can get all this stuff out and at the end of it if you end up with some great songs then everyone's a winner that's really interesting isn't it it's fascinating and also um you know, you t- I mean, I want to get onto Splinter later. We're sort of getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but I am fascinated by by what you said. Um, in that, Splinter is such an eloquent record, and you talk about it being your depression record, and you you talked about 
having communication problems as somebody that suffers from Asperger's. But there's no communication problems there, Gary. Like that, that is such an honest and for a man, you know, it's a very girly thing to be able to communicate your emotions. And I mean that in the, in the most complimentary way. And, I'm, and you know this, I, I'm in awe of how honest and open you were with that splinter record songs from a broken mind and it really came from mm. a place of terrible depression and mm. pain mm. but you managed to um express that in such an eloquent way and that's doesn't really make any any sense if you if, if you say that i've got asperger's and i've got difficulty communicating but you absolutely don't the thing about asperger's though it's an it's an interaction problem aha uh-huh. You're not interacting when you're writing. You're simply expressing. Oh, and that's a completely out. different thing. I can be as, you know, I, I can write anything. I can be as open and as honest because I don't have to make eye contact. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's much easier. <laughs> uh, in that situation, I, I can be as open as honest and, and, and I have no problems with it whatsoever. But it, it's not quite the same when I'm sitting down with somebody. This is easier because we're, chatting you know what about me really so as any asperger's person could talk about themselves usually till the cows come home mm-hmm. but to chit chat not so easy when yeah. i get to know you obviously yeah. we, we chat easily now it's yeah. no problem at all yeah but for, for for me in a in a new situation you know Gemma's amazing you know so I stand in her shadow usually and let her do it all and then i chip mm-hmm. in as i get confident you know but to write about it None of the Asperger's things applies, except perhaps to the slightly uh, unusual way. Perhaps you see the world sometimes that might come through yeah. a little bit. So well, let's. Um, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much. Let's rewind ourselves now back to what must have been a very interesting time in your professional life, which was the time in between our friends Electric and Cars, when you must have had an enormous amount of pressure. When you know anyone. Uh, and Nick, you've seen this like mm. so many mm. times. Like when mm. when you you have uh, an album that's number one, and your record company are just wanting to milk you for as much as they possibly can in as short a space of, of, of time as you've got, because music industry, especially in this country, is so fickle, and you only have a sort of certain amount of time. So mm. you must have been driven like a galley slave um, back then. It was busy. I never felt as if I was being driven hard by anyone, though. Well, of course, because it was this was a, an independent label, so a yeah. bit more family oriented. It felt like a family to me. It really did, and uh, I I didn't have m- management at the time. I was sort of looking after myself. I know I go home and ask my dad, "What do you think?" Because yeah, it is sort of the, that, the acid test. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's also interesting. So you'd smashed onto the scene. You were a star, and you were unmanaged. Was that unusual in that time, or or were? your contemporaries kind of doing it for themselves also you know the ultravoxes and the human leagues and some of these kind of guys are well i didn't really know any of them to be right. you know, the, the interesting hack- thing about them is for me that when when i made that first album yeah um i really did think i i was the only one doing it i really did and part of my reason for being so passionate at our sort of heavy meeting at Beggar's banquet was mm. I, I i wanted this out before someone else discovered it because it was just sitting there everyone's everyone's going to discover this soon because it's amazing you know yeah um and then i i started to go through record stores you know Beggar's banquet owned record shops back then second hand mm. record shops mm. i was going through all the catalogs and i started to find other people um Human League and yeah. OMD and Fad Gadget and Daniel Miller before Mute and 
and Ultravox. Mm. And, and Ultravox, I realised, I found out, were on their third album. And they were all brilliant. So I, I suddenly realised that I wasn't this... I hadn't discovered anything at all. I, if anything, <laughs> I was right at the end of it. You know, be, people had been doing it for a few years before me, and, that, and they were the true pioneers of it, not, not me. I was really late, late to the party. But they had... Ultravox in particular... Had some, they they had a very similar lineup to me. They had a conventional lineup, guitar-based drums, but they also had an electronic element to it. And I'd stumbled into that mix. And I, do you know what? I, I think that's the reason that I, I made it. Part of the reason that I made it when I did, or how I did. I I, I had conventional guitar-based drums lineup with this electronic layer on top of it. Because of the way I discovered the synthesizer, I was a conventional band that discovered a synthesizer. Mm. And so my music, much the same as Ultravox's at the time, had enough familiarity about it for people to be able to relate to it and enough quirkiness about it for people to think it was something new and different. You know, it had that, by chance, it had that mix that seemed to cross the divide between you know, conventional and, and experimental. And I think that's why it took off. You know, maybe the image and the, the the way of presentation has something to do with it. But I think that's, musically, that's what happened. So when you listen to what Ultravox were doing at the time, which I've always thought was much better than what I was doing, if they had have had the same lucky break that I had, then they would have flown. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Mm. Well, let's, let's remind you with, uh, with this. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. Ultravox and uh, Slow Motion. Sounding sounding pretty majestic, actually. I've not heard that song, God, for decades and decades. Sounding you, really good. John Fox. You know, I, I, John Fox was my idol mm. when I, back back in the day. You know, it's such an enigmatic, but I love the way he sang. Phrasing was completely off the wall. Yeah, yeah. Really, really great. And it sounded yeah. classy. And, and it's interesting, actually, you know, listening to that, and, you know, you, you, you say, oh, that was you know, much better than what I was doing. But I, I wouldn't say better or worse. It, 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 was, it was different because what you... Cause, you were a punk, really. You were you were kind of a, you were following that DIY punk ethos, and I bet you any money that Ultravox were proper musicians and like yeah, I think had, I. had had tuners which you didn't. Because uh, I remember you can, Gary confessed to me once that his first records actually the, the instruments weren't properly in tune with each other because they were they were they were tuning by ear yeah to you know to a tuning yeah fork, I, or to, I, I didn't know you know A four forty you know the way what pianos are tuned to yeah A four forty that's the standard. Uh, I didn't even know about that until I made my uh, on my third album. Yeah. So the third replicas, you know, number one album, not not tuned to A440. It's very, it's incredibly close actually, which I'm I'm sort of vaguely proud of, <laughs> but it's not right. You know, it's all it's actually it's about a quarter of a tone flat. Wow. Whole album. But you know, punters don't know this stuff. They don't care, and sometimes sort of record label people, you know, can you know pick up on problems. I mean, I remember once. 
early days, uh, probably even before, yeah, it would be before XL started and I was at City Beat, which was um, essentially a, a sort of joint venture between a guy called Tim Palmer and Martin Mills, who you've, you've oh, mentioned yeah. several times. And uh, there was a record, <clears throat> a record uh, that I wanted to sign. It was called Wishing on a Star by Fresh Four. And the vocal wasn't great, but... I was just like, yeah, this is exciting. It sounds great. It was kind of in that sort of um, soul to soul, massive attack kind of area. And and I was like, Smith and Mighty vibe. I was like, yeah, it's great. We should sign it. And I remember Tim was like, yeah, but the vocal's just not good enough. So we shouldn't sign it. But I was like, but it's got a great vibe, you know, and we should. Mm. And we didn't. And it was a hit. And that's a bit like, you're, you know, technically, some some maybe somebody would have said, oh, that's not quite right. And, you know, it doesn't matter. It's about... A lot of it's about the vibe, isn't it, and what it does to people. Yeah, yeah. Really important. Well, I listen back, on, you know, in the course of doing these shows that we're doing now, these classic album shows, mm. I, I listen back to the multi-tracks and all of these songs, mm. you know, to, to relearn them or remember them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm listening back to Raw, the, the Raw recordings, not even the mixed thing, you know, where mm. you can fix things a little bit, <laughs> and it's just... Basic, man. Like, are you thinking, ah, you know, if I was doing it now, oh, I'd have changed that. And, oh, yeah. And all this yeah. kind of thing. And going probably through, killed yeah. whatever it killed was. Killed the vibe. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. That's the trouble with experience. You, you no longer leave things alone, perhaps, when you should do. Because you, know, yeah. you know that it can be better. Yeah, you're a yeah. tweaker, aren't you? Yeah. I don't mean that in a crystal meth way. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you, you strike me as a tweaker. I know, I know you're a tweaker. You, 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 you love to go into a track, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and of course, you've got the luxury yeah. of your own studio. That's the problem, that. the problem with having a studio at home or having the luxury of time is that you can crawl up your own backside. <laughs> yeah. You can, yeah. And you do, you, you know, in those days with replicas and the first and replicas, I think, was done in uh, five days or maybe seven. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole album from beginning to end, you know, including mixing again. Crazy. You know, they were really quick and we, we could only afford to rent a synthesizer for two other days. Wow. So all the synth stuff was done really, really quick. You know, sort of one take, you could get it. So there were mistakes, bum notes here and there. So that you just left because you didn't have time to keep going back and doing it again. And there's something to be said that, for yeah. giving yourself a ridiculous deadline. Mm. What, whatever you do in the next seven days, that's it. That's yeah, whatever. there is. Do something. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and obviously it's, it's, it's surprising what can come out under yeah. those, with those p- parameters. And, and you know what? I think some of the great artists um, give themselves self-imposed parameters and they, in, they could do anything. They could make any kind of record. But they go, actually, no, you know, I'm going to work within these parameters and that's what I'm going to get white stripes, for example. Yeah. You know, parameters in terms of equipment and parameters in terms of visual representation, you know, color palette of the of the act and the marketing and everything. It's like, yeah, let's just be between here and there, but let's be brilliant in that space. And that's cool. Then, yeah. You know, there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of uh, musicians and artists and chefs who I count as artists mm. say a lot of the really good ones say I work better under pressure. Yeah, and with chefs certainly, you know, there's yeah. so much pressure in that in that game. But um, so if we rewind back now to that period between between uh, um, our friends Electric and Cars, didn't your success um, give you a little bit more time in the studio to to create the next record? No, it did the opposite. Funnily enough, uh, uh, when our friends Electric came out was number one I was already in the studio making the next one I had a, I had a really funny thing one day I was we just recorded um, Cars I think it was or the demo for Cars yeah uh, and a studio just behind the Strand 
in the West End. And we were coming out trying to get a cab. And there was a, I heard our French Electric coming out of a window. And it had only just come out as number one. So I'm, I'm not, I've not heard that before. Somebody playing my stuff. You know? Wow. And so uh, we spotted it. And there's a, a, a first floor flat. And it's, from what we could see of the shadow, it was a woman doing her ironing. You could see this motion. It's just a shadow. And she's dancing and ironing to our friend's electric. And I'm stood outside looking up at her. Just thinking, how cool is that for yeah. me? Was, you know, was for there me. eye contact? No. <laughs> so I'm happy. Oh, my God. So funny. Thought, yeah, if only she'd known. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, outside yeah. the window, there he was. You know, so, how uh, weird. Really cool. I love little, little things like that. They're really cool. But So we were making... Um, we were doing all the demos to Pleasure Principle as our French lecture went to number one and then we went straight from the demo studio to a place called Marcus Music actually mm-hmm. it was the first proper studio I'd been to mm. and we had the luxury of having two weeks there where we made Pleasure Principle over two weeks so, two weeks it's it's just unthinkable yeah, now un- isn't it yeah it's, yeah. Um, yeah and, and so that's it to us that seemed long that was twice as long as we'd had for the, the, the albums before so you know, we, we sort of just laid back a little bit with that. Quick, yeah. quick question: When was when did the original kind of idea for cars evolve? Was it, you know, at that point when you were number one, or did you have it in your back pocket? No, I had it already. You had it um, already. Our fringe electric was finished. Yeah, and it was the, the whole replicas album was finished. And yeah, it was on its way. Yeah, I think Down in the Park may have come out. I'm not mm-hmm, I can't mm-hmm. remember sure. But I, I actually I'd been to London to buy a bass guitar. Yeah, I wanted to learn to play bass better. So I yeah. could play it on the records, or write with it actually. And um, I, I got it home, got it out of the case. It's called a Shergold modulator. I've still got it. Oh yeah, yeah. So I've still got the original strings in it. Yeah. I think. Oh my god. And uh, I picked it up, and the very, very first four notes were do 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 do. I thought, oh, that sounds all right. Yeah, do 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 do. So then I do 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 do, and they were the first things I played. I mean, the song was written in about a minute. Do you mean that the open tuning of the guitar was da 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 da? No, it wasn't was that... open. It was tuned. Oh, was see, tuned right. Oh, right, right, right. It was still in tune when I got it. When I got it home, so it's the first top two strings. Da, 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 da. So somebody just left a it in flat a... and a G and an A. I think. I mean, yeah, yeah, some of that. Somebody left it in a bizarre prog rock tuning. No, in the conventional tuning. Uh, try it. I'll show you. I'll show you. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's how it happened. That's how I wrote it. Yeah, and then the whole thing. Uh, so I put it all together. The little chorus part. Took about ten minutes, and then I did the lyrics. I think in about another ten twenty minutes. I think the whole thing took about half an hour. Maybe I don't, maybe yeah. now I don't remember it perfectly. But quickest song I ever wrote. But I wrote it on bass guitar. Wow! So this electronic classic is actually written on a bass guitar. Okay, and <laughs> and was there a, a sync thing going on with this record? Was it in a some kind of TV ad or something like that? No, I'd done a, an ad for. Um, set, oh, what was it? Set, what what was it? Lee Cooper jeans. Yeah, oh, yeah, Lee Cooper. Yeah, Lee, yeah. Don't oh, that's be a dummy. Right. Yes. Called. Yeah. Well, that, what happened there was I'd done the first album. I was working on the Our Friends Electric album, mm. Replicas, um, and my publisher, a man called Andrew Heath, was playing my first album in in this um, in his office, and the people next door, a man called Ronnie Bond, I think, had just been commissioned to do the Lee Cooper advert. Heard me singing, thought, oh, that's a voice. I will have that because it was all weird and. Midwich cuckoo type thing, you know, weird little sci-fi thing. Right, and so they got me in to do it. They paid me forty pounds to to sing it, 
Um, and then they changed the lyrics, so they got me back to sing it, the, the new lyrics. I've got another 40 quid for that. I went, 80 quid? Yeah, I was on the dole then. Shouldn't have been, but I was, you know. And uh, it was like far more money. I thought I'd made it at that point. You know, that this is 80 quid mm. in one week, you know, mm. which was pretty good, you know, yeah. for, for the time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm full of it now. And then um, that came out, and the, the mm. advert did really well. And as the advert came out, our friends Electric went to number one. Right. So then the thing I do remember is is um, when I was recording that, I asked them if it was going to be a single because um, I hadn't had a hit single there and not, lots of people were becoming successful via hit singles. Blue blue Jeans, Bruce, well, you know, there's plenty of them at the time. So I saw, I saw a glimmer of opportunity mm. and I said to them, is this going to be a single? And they were horrible to me. Nasty. Really put me down and made me feel about that big you know, and I was crushed you know mm. so I went home from that and then a few weeks later our friend Electric goes to number one and the advert comes out and then he comes back to me and says would you mind singing it on the advert nope I don't think I will actually mm. nah. yeah you're bloody horrible so I wouldn't I wouldn't do it yeah, and got to be someone nice. else to, to sing it and she did come out as a single but not, not with me singing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trailblazers Gary Newman So let's forward the clock a little to um, to Depeche Mode. And um, we've never really talked about Depeche Mode, but of course, there's a great similarity. They, they, they must have been influenced by you to make the, the, the music that they ended up making. I've read that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but I mean, I, I love must them. Must I, I, I remember going to a club in, uh, in the West End not long after, I think Cars had come out. So I was, you know, I was pretty well known. Um, and Depeche Mode were playing live and they were just there was no stage it was in a club you know, it was on the floor set up on the floor and I thought it were brilliant and I was, I wanted to sign them to, to Beggar's Banquet and, oh. and I met a man called Rusty Egan do you know Rusty yeah. Egan? yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Rusty Palace. Egan said to me oh no I've already signed them to someone else which was an absolute lie as it turned out okay. but that was enough for me to go oh fair enough then so I never Didn't I never did it, it. Oh. and then I when I was going to do my first tour, a few months after that, I really loved Daniel Miller and what yeah. music Daniel Miller was making. So I, I got guy. in touch with Daniel Miller and asked him if he would come out and tour with me and be the support band. And he said, no, he's setting up this thing, which I gather was Mute, yeah. eventually, Mute Records, yes. which the Mode signed to. Yes. Yes. So I don't know if Rusty had a connection with that or not, but it's, it's possible, I suppose. Um, so, uh, you know, as soon as I made it and got anywhere, I was very keen to... to work with other electronic people mm. and bring them along and help mm. them and Daniel couldn't do it so I got in touch with a cushion manoeuvres and took them out and and they didn't have any money so we, we took them on our bus and carried their gear for them and, oh. and all that so um, I loved it though to me becoming successful was you it felt like us against the world you, you know musicians yep. standing by each other mm-hmm. and we should all look after each other and compliment each other and help each other out as much as possible and that's what I tried to do with everybody mm. when I started and I was really disappointed that 
nobody else seemed to think that way. And I remember some, you know, some people saying some people that I've been praising saying some pretty horrible things, and and, and I was pretty demoralised actually by, by the the, um, the 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 selfishness of it. You know, this bitterness. I don't know. I don't even know what the right word for it is, but mm. I was really, really. Um, kicked back by it I went in there like a little kid in a sweet shop oh yeah I love them and I love them and that's mm. brilliant and why don't you know isn't it all great now look what what a great thing we're involved in because it is isn't it you're in a band you know you're doing the thing you love doing you've had a little bit of success and everything's fantastic what have you got to bitch about you're living the dream living mm. the dream mm. absolutely no reason to be bitter and nasty and slag anybody off no reason <laughs> yeah. at all and yet it's full of it everywhere yeah. again yeah. universe imbalance for every nice guy there is an asshole, <laughs> <laughs> and that will always be and, and I, I, you know the universe has to has to operate like yeah that. it was a shame mm. it was a shame and I, I thought we could all just it would have been so it would have made so much sense for everybody we all look after each other we all promote each other. We all talk about each other's gigs. We all guest on each other's records. Whatever you do, and we all get bigger. We all become. We all have more fun, and it's friendly and it's lovely, and well, it's just positive. And it was no, no, didn't want to know. We're original. You nick this. You nick that. Oh, shut up! Mm. You know, really. Well, so um, back to Depeche Mode, and. Um, which which Depeche Mode song have you chosen to play? I've chosen uh, "Walking in Walking in My Shoes." Now, the, the Depeche Mode I've always loved, um, but there was a period around about ninety three, ninety four, where I was absolutely finished. Ninety two, probably actually, is the year it was worst of all. But my career was in the uh, completely down the toilet. I couldn't sell records, couldn't give away tickets. I mean, literally, couldn't give away tickets because I tried and people didn't want them. <laughs> They're probably right, wow. really bad. You know, you're in the yes. streets trying to give away tickets. Yes. It's like People giving away money. Thanks. Yeah, oh, yeah. man, oh. it's pretty desperate. Oh. So oh. that was happening. Yeah. Uh, I was massively in debt. I had about 600, 650 grand's worth of debt. They were trying to repossess my house. You know, it was pretty grim. This is when I met Gemma, the, the, mm. the year I met Gemma. Mm. So mm. she got me at my best. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, and then I, I gave up. I, I, my songwriting was terrible. Um, I didn't like the songs I was doing. I, 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 my head was empty in terms of what I wanted to sing about, or write about. I was in this little black hole and I didn't know what to do. And I and I gave up. I had no record deal, no obvious signs that I'd ever get another one. Uh, so I went back to doing it for a hobby, for the love of it, yeah. rather than trying to write songs to get on the radio and to please an A&R man or to get a deal. Yes. I just gave up completely and I'm just going to go back. I've got a little studio at home, a little 12-track Porter studio. It's all I had left because I'd sold everything. Yeah. Um, and I started to write songs for the love of it again the way I had when I started and as soon as I did that not only did I enjoy it which I hadn't I realised I hadn't been enjoying it for mm. quite some time years yeah. but the music was heavier and darker and a lot more interesting and I loved it again and I fell in love with the thing all over again Yeah, and it changed everything and when I was doing that Depeche Mode put out songs of faith and devotion their album and it absolutely blew me away. Amazing, amazing bit of work. And that walking in my shoes it isn't about what I was going through, but it felt like it was. You know, and, and the lyrics made connected with me in such a way, a completely wrong way as it turned out, but they, nonetheless they did. It seemed to reflect 
what I was going through. And I listened to that album and the darkness of it and the layers. I mean, Alan Wilder, I think, essentially did most of the production on that with, with Flood. And it's phenomenal. phenomenal. You can listen to it a hundred times and still hear things you hadn't heard before. It's amazing, amazing piece of work. And it completely changed the way I thought and what I wanted to sing about and... It changed everything. It was a huge moment for me. And it, it was the album that shaped the, the path that I've been on ever since. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. Try walking in my shoes, you stop running my footsteps. Keep the same appointments I get. If you try walking in my shoes, if you try walking in so good to hear that again Depeche Mode Walking in My Shoes from Songs of Faith and Devotion as chosen by Gary Newman to uh, soundtrack I guess the, the that low point when you thought your career was over like you said and um, so now you're about to enter a very interesting part of your career and you're entering it with nothing because you had no deal and you didn't really have a, a sound or you didn't really know what you were doing and then suddenly and, and and concurrently to this, there's this, well, we talk about, you know, you finding that mini Moog way back in, in 1978. And those uh, very cool analog synth sounds that, of course, we all take for granted and that everyone's got on soft synths now. But they, like you say, you fell out of favour and a lot of a lot of people fell out of favour at that time. And, and there was one person in America who was when everybody was going, oh, the 80s, and all the sounds from the 80s are shit, and let's not use them, let's use 90s or whatever, let's, let's use um, more current sounds. Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails was the custodian, wasn't he, of those analogue synth sounds, and he just kept that going and, and used it in such a visceral way. And uh, it, he's... Well, well documented on the on, on the cover of Time magazine, you know, decades ago as the most influential man in music today. And um, so he I know that you're friends now and he you know, that must have, you know, must have been very inspiring for you when you what, what was happening or where were you when you first heard Nine Inch Nails or you first interacted with this amazing music? I was uh, I was downstairs in my room, in my little twelve track studio. Still, um, I just started to see Gemma, and Gemma was upstairs playing music. Where were you geographically at this point? Essex. Essex. Okay. Yeah. Lived in Essex near Stansted Airport. Okay. And uh, I, I heard a song called "Head Like a Hole" came on, and I ran upstairs to Gemma and said, "What? What is that? That's just like the best thing ever, <laughs> you know." And it was just. It's song to die for, you know. It's got the best chorus in the world, you think, and then it's got another one. Yeah, it's even you better. with another one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, any song in the world, you know, the two, the two best choruses in the world are both in the same song. It's just amazing. And so, and then through Gemma, um, Gemma introduced me to Tepesh Mode, songs of faith and devotion. It escaped me. So she introduced me to all of this stuff that completely reshaped where I was going. And the, the the Nine Inch Nails thing, you know, it was a real eye-opener. I, I'd realised how, how stagnated I'd become. You know, I, I was doing all this. I was 
doing all these cool sounds and thinking differently and you know and going off on these different paths and somewhere along the line lost it all lost it all got corrupted got famous got corrupted lost it lost it completely really ashamed of myself really ashamed and then I heard Nine Inch Nails and I heard songs of faith and devotion and I and I started to work on my own stuff again and it was heavy and dark and I loved it and, and it was when there's all this music I'd never heard that was incredibly inspiring and uh, just absolutely born again what would you have done do you think if you hadn't had that pivotal moment were you starting to think uh, you know okay I'll maybe I'm going to drive a cab or, you know or, or did, you, uh, did you think about doing work outside of the music industry at that point uh, I, I, it was a serious possibility yeah you could I, have been a pilot honesty, you I'd... could have worked at Stansted Airport <laughs> <laughs> loose so I am here all week no. um, yeah short drive <laughs> exactly yeah nice, nice drive to could work could have walked to work <laughs> Yeah. I honestly didn't know. Didn't know, just didn't no. know what what to do, where to go, type thing. And then, no, and then it, the music, it, the music saved you. But how yeah. got you back but on track? How poetic that you're at your this low ebb, and you you you're looking and needing something to happen, needing some inspiration, and the inspiration that you got were from two bands who were incredibly influenced by you, Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, and Trent Reznor is on record as saying he wouldn't be doing what he does were it not for Gary Newman yeah there was, there was so, a lovely poetry there's, there's some, there's that's some, amazing and Gary yeah. right now so, might not yeah <laughs> and so Gary hears this song thinks oh my god this is the best thing ever has no idea that the yeah. guy who's made this tune because of him yeah that's that's some, there's something cosmic yeah. something I didn't, universally I didn't, cosmic about I that I didn't know that until much later yeah yeah but he's you know Trent has been very helpful to me in a number of ways over, over the years um, which Emma organised one of the things actually uh, towards the end of 2008, 2009 I think it was uh, the whole depression thing was kicking in and I was really down and you know, things were not going great and and um, Gemma heard that Trent was doing one of my songs called Metal uh, live, he'd done a cover version of it before but he was doing it live on their, on their tour and so she wrote to Trent because we'd met him by then and sort of got to know him a little bit but so she wrote to Trent and, and um, suggested that I come on stage and guest with him yeah. um, and sing metal with him. She didn't tell me she'd done it because I'd never have let her do it because I was uh, way out of my comfort zone for that. Mm. But she did it mm. and she got a reply back from Trent who was well up for it. And so they, they invited me to be a guest at the O2, the arena. Yeah. And they did cars and metal and it was just the best thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was blown away. You know, so yeah. I'm, on, I'm at an arena and it's packed and Nine Inch Nails are my favourite band in the world. They like my backing band. Oh, my Trent's doing God. backing vocals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what dream could you have? So I'm loving this anyway. And then I get invited to, to uh, Los Angeles and I play their last, what should have been their last four shows ever. They obviously changed his mind. Yeah. And... um it's just the best thing. They got to know him really well and got to be sort of much, much better friends with him. And he introduced me at the O2. And uh, the introduction was just amazing. And, and I was really... It's lovely. You know, I really sort of emotional and upset about it. And it's just oh. fantastic. And he talked about how important I was when he was coming up with Nine Inch Nails and the whole idea and the sound for it and how he listened to my stuff all the time and to create, create that. And I didn't know that. And, and it was lovely. And it made me think about my own back catalogue differently because I'd always been a bit dismissive of it. 
and uh, hadn't really given it any weight or importance and just always thought I've been lucky to get there and didn't think much about the songwriting and I really was down on myself. People say I'm too humble. It's, I'm, I'm not. I I'm just don't break myself very much so at all. He, so you, when you hear someone like Trent, who I do admire and I have a huge amount of respect for, saying things like that about my music, and then he wrote me this email, which is just a lovely thing, telling, saying, saying to me, he said, you don't realise how important you've been. He said, and you should. You need to know that we, we, me and my friends talk. We talk about you and what you've done. And, and I didn't know any of this. And as a confidence booster, it just lifted me right up out of the ground. And... Um, it was it was amazing, but Gemma did it. You know, she started the whole thing. So you know, once again, I get saved. Gemma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's soundtrack this lovely um, this lovely image uh, of Gemma introducing you to, to all this um, with with head like a hole. It's one of the best songs ever. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. fascinating like you know hearing a, a beloved song like this to me and and then but then hearing it seeing it through gary newman's eyes of, mm. it's got two choruses i never <laughs> thought about it like that of course that, that's an abba trick <laughs> that's how i remember talking to paul draper from manson about his songwriting and going you know you deaf leopard like you, you empire of the sun you're you you write just like when you've got two, three choruses in one in one track, and he goes, "Oh, just because I ripped off Abba." Yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just went through all of those. It's as simple as that, Eddie. I just went through and I just ripped off Abba. I just literally ripped, just totally ripped them off. So um, we we can't uh, um, talk about Nine Inch Nails without then mentioning uh, the Downward Spiral, uh, the the next album, um, and then leading on perfectly to to your Downward Spiral. Um, with Splinter, uh, you know, life is a is a series of ups and downs, and uh, you hit a really, really serious down with with Splinter. Yeah, and yeah. like I said, you were very eloquent about it artistically and and publicly. You know, with with me especially you, on on my XFM show. You know, Gary, I'm talking to Nick now. You know, mm. Gary just was so mm. so uh, open. Mm. with uh, with with the depression thing and, and depression is a very difficult thing to talk about and um you know we and you're not afraid of talking about it and i'm 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 in awe of you for, for doing that oh well thank you but i mean I, I i i don't see any reason why there should be a stigma attached to it you know it, it's a it's shocking to me actually how many people either have it or have had it or know someone that's got it you know it's like this great big unspoken of problem yeah and but it's everywhere, and the truth is, it's it's relatively easily fixed for most people if they would just admit it, recognise it, yeah, go ask to the, for a bit of help, yeah, ask for a bit of help. You know, it doesn't need to be there. Doesn't need to be there. Yeah, and help can come in so many forms. You know, yeah. just and and the key for me is is talking. It's men. Yeah. And we've got you know three men communicating here mm. and talking and that is yeah. the most it's a really sort of powerful tip to anyone it's help can come in the form of just 
a friend, just mm. talking to a friend, yeah. you know. And I, I, I was t- actually I was talking earlier on to to a, a great friend, uh, an old colleague who who's saying, you know, I'm really struggling, and man, you know, it's that. 4 a.m. is the worst. Four and f- between four and five a.m. And I said that I, I had this conversation just a few hours ago. God as my witness, I go. I'm going to give you the best tip ever. I tell you who saved my life it was Gemma Newman because because <laughs> at between the hours of four and when I was suicidal, between the hours of four and five, all of my depressed insomniac British chums were asleep by 5am but of course you guys were in LA and and Gemma sweetly gave me you know her number and your number and so I would call up in the middle of the, the morning here but of course it was dinner time for you and, that, and that's <laughs> so I said the best tip I can give you um, to, to my friend is think of your best mate who lives in LA and when you get to, when you hit five o'clock, four or five o'clock, I'm okay now. You can't call me, man. My phone will be off. But call somebody in LA. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> but, but um, but back to the back to that the, the splinter. Let's 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 talk about splinter a little bit. We, I mean, we we have we've covered it on 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 XFM. But let's you know let's let's talk about it here. So, songs from a broken mind. So yeah. and, and so what was. I mean, in a nutshell, because we're kind of running out of time here. I mean, I mean, we've got to communicate now. I say we can't. We haven't got time, which is a bit shit, and I admit that. But um, but that's you know we we have constraints, and we talked about working under under the parameters of pressure. So um, tell us, tell us, you know what you how you feel about it now, because you've come out the other side, and 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 hopefully you're in a much better place. Much better, yeah. Um, the, the album, I I genuinely believe was a very very important part of me coming out of the depression i started to recover when i started to make it and i think recovery was was hastened and improved considerably by being able to write splinter and get all of those feelings out and in doing so think about them deeply understand why it happened understand the way i felt why i felt you know the way i felt about Gemma. you know we were rocky for a while um, Gemma had depression and then as yeah. hers towed and I, I went in so we had a very difficult period as a couple for quite some time new family you know lots of things going on yeah and we did struggle for a bit there's a few songs on there about that um, it, it just I honestly think that I've come out the other end of it better than I was before I'm still a moody person I'm always going to be but I know we're near as bad as I was before and I recognise it more now I don't think I'm as difficult to be with Perhaps, as I was before, it does make people stronger and wiser, doesn't it? It's, I, I mean, so. it's an obvious thing to say, but you, when you when you when you go through something like that, you get through the other side, and you get there a stronger person, a wiser person, and actually a more interesting person. All, all, all the best people are the ones that are, <laughs> that have had depression, <laughs> that, have, that have really struggled. I mean, you've got you've got something well, that's that, uh, and and also, there's hardly any great art has come from happiness. Well, that's the other side of it. You, you know, you, you often do your, your best work when you are dealing with things and you have something to say or you, you are feeling very mm. emotional about something. Yep. For, for me, it's never happiness. Happiness doesn't make me want to write. Happiness makes me want to go out, go to the beach. If I'm happy, I don't really want to work. But if I'm not, then it's all there and it's all pouring out now I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but it certainly would give an answer to why my music is the way it is you know I don't write happy tunes 
I don't think they're morose or, or down necessarily, although the subject matter often is. You know, I don't think that, but nonetheless, I don't write happy, uplifting music in in conventional sense. You know, like skippy skippy tunes. But I think it's just as valid, you know, to write that sort of thing. For me, it's therapy. Always has been. Mm. Always so will be. A real think. catharsis. Yes, yeah. and, and an important one. Yeah. And so what? And what was soundtracking? I'm slightly feeling awkward now because I because you you said that you wanted to play a song that I wrote. Yeah, yeah, very important one. This one, <laughs> this song, changed the whole nature of what Splinter was going to be about. This is a very important song. Splinter, when I first started to work on it, was going to be a wall to wall balls out riff fest of anthemic choruses, very one dimensional. I just wanted it to be the best festival performance you could ever imagine. Every every song, bang, 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 you. And then I heard your song. As well, me, me and Tom Bellamy, yeah. yeah. And I thought, nope, this is amazing. And I loved it, and I loved it. And I, I remember when I first heard it, I went running in and got Gemma. I rang up mate, I rang up Aid, my producer at the time, and said, you got, I, I sent, I don't know if I should have done it, but I sent it to him as well. <laughs> Legal cover. So, you got to listen to this because this is where we need to go with a new one. I'm completely changing everything that I've done. And so I started to write an album that's far more varied, more interesting. And that's when all the depression things started to come out. And you honestly, that song completely changed Splinter from what it was going to be into what people think now is probably the best album I've ever made. So, you know, thank you very much for that because it changed everything, man. Wow. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. and Azan as chosen by Gary Newman I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely gobsmacked and that, that has to go out with a huge shout to Tom Bellamy and to Paul Mullen and, uh, and to Jem Godfrey who um, was the, uh, the overlord who made that sound absolutely fantastic in the mix um, so well, we have actually run out of time but um, you know this is a, this is a podcast so well, let's that's just, all right. Let's just I'll, push it. I'll tell the alien to listen to that as well. Ah, oh, right. So you know, you know the last question. So yes, you were listening when we briefed you before we rolled. So our, uh, um, our the the last tune choice is a question that we ask everyone, and it is it is this that if aliens landed, and they were doing some kind of a galactic survey to uh, to possibly destroy this planet to make way for some kind of superhighway, and you had. One song. They, they asked you for one song. We, we've only got five minutes. We're busy, very busy aliens, and we've got a lot of planets to survey. And we're thinking about <laughs> destroying your one, but we're not sure. Can you, can you give us one song that will either, either save the planet or, or, or destroy it? What, what would be your song to save the planet? To save it, it would be Teardrop, Massive Attack, because it is beautiful. And you would never destroy anything that could make something that beautiful. <laughs> as simple as that. <laughs> that, 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 is a, that's, that. That's absolutely lovely. Should we, should we end with that? I feel as though we, that's... We, we, that we, says it all. Um, well, well, Gary, um, thank you so much for, for doing Trailblazer. Oh, pleasure. As a, as a true Trailblazer. Yeah, really appreciate it. And congratulations on that award. That must have felt... Uh, I mean, as we record this, you were handed an award 
last night yeah. by Jean-Michel Jarre. Yeah, who is pretty a, cool. Huh? A, 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 another um, person who's going to be uh, on, on the Trailblazers show. Possibly, Nick. Possibly. Um, so that must have felt incredible. It was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it really it really was. Uh, and I, I'm very grateful you know, to, to Q and Jean-Michel come all the way from Paris just to present it. Yeah, that, that was pretty special. Yeah, had, had, you, had you ever met him before? Yeah, I know. We, we know each other. We've, we've been working on things for the last couple of years now. He's, he's got... Um, uh, a, a double album set coming out. The first one has just been released. This, then the second one is coming out in April. Mm. I'm on the second one. Mm. We co-wrote a song together. Which wow. Maybe a single from it. So because of that, we got to know. You've been around our house three or four times, I think. I've got a film of him wrestling on the floor with my dog. <laughs> yeah. So now, and he's lovely. He's one of the most charming and eloquent and lovable people you, you would ever wish to meet. I, I, I really love him. He's a fantastic man. And just, he's got that accent as well. You just want to kiss him when he talks. <laughs> oh, Gemma does, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and so uh, now I hear that you've started work on the follow-up to Splinter. I'm just about to. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to do a pledge campaign on it and it launches on November the 9th. And I, I deliberately haven't done anything on it uh, because I want... The, the idea of the pledge is to, is to involve the fans... When you buy, when you get an album, you get a shrink wrap piece of finished product. Yeah, and I want people to know what it takes to make it to get it to that stage yeah. from the very first note onwards. So yeah. I'm going to have a little camera set up in the studio, and I will go in there on a Monday morning, and I will start. And I'll, this will be the first note of the record, and then it will document the whole thing over a year or how long it takes. I'm expecting about a year, and every month or so, I will do a little video update with bits of tracks lyrics talking good days bad days because you know, plenty of days are horrible and you feel dreadful and you're kicking things and you know being childish and getting all in, in a state because it hasn't gone well yeah. and it's actually more that than anything else you know, it's a very tortuous process and when you work on your own you can get very lost very easily there's a battle with yourself and your confidence and your, your fragility of your confidence it's a very agonizing process to make an album I, I liken it to climbing Everest. You know, mm. not that I've ever climbed Everest, obviously, but, <laughs> but it, it has feels that same, it feels like it when yeah, you're, you're out of air and it's you know, it's just horrible and you're dying and you don't know what to do and you, all you can do is go up or down, yeah. and it's that sort of feeling to it. And and I want people to witness that, and so that when they do get the album and it's shrink wrapped perfection, they will know what it took to make it for the first time, and they will appreciate it perhaps a bit more. But more importantly, they'll feel a part of it. And involved yeah. in it, and that's why I deliberately have not done anything towards it yet because I want it all to start. So it starts. is it is a true blank page at An the moment, which canvas, you are yeah. going to. I just have no working title, even nothing at all. Not one lyric, not one word, not one song title. Mm. That's nothing at all. That's very exciting and mm. liberating. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, mm. yeah, because I'm I've never done it with a witness before. <laughs> so we'll see how that works well, out. Put me down. Put me down. <laughs> I'll be the first the first person to sign up. But I hope it I hope it triggers something with the fans. You know, I, I hope it brings them in. Uh, and makes them feel involved in it uh, and I hope they find the process interesting and I hope they don't see too much of the the, the bad side of me you know the emotional horrible because I'm actually pretty friendly when I meet people yeah you know well there's another side you know when you're making an album that just comes out and you, and you it's 
it's a process, you know, and I, and I want that to be seen. I want people to know how I suffer <laughs> to make those albums. Well, Gary, I said this before, you've got the best fans in the world and they are surely a reflection of you. So, oh, Gary, thank you. Gary thank Newman, you trailblazer. Thank, thank you so much. And thank you, Gary. Let's, uh, let's end with uh, Gary Newman's song to save the planet Earth. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. Originals. Trailblazers. Thanks for your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we love your feedback. So if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter at EddieTM. That's E double D Y T M. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawks, N I C K H A L K E S, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the, the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section. Where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance. Trailblazers. Thanks so much to Gary Newman for joining us. Next time, Norman Cook. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.